So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Hosea's and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villagers teaching. Morning, everyone. Good to see you. <laughs> My name is Jared, and uh, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together this morning. Thank you that we can uh, read your word, help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us, grow us in our love for you, and uh, fill us um, with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. And we pray that as we look at Jesus in Nazareth, we would come to understand uh, the right way of responding to Jesus and that we too would respond the right way and not the wrong way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I want to start this morning by thinking about home. Where is home for you? How do you feel about going home? Uh, do you ever get homesick? Uh, maybe, maybe home for you is you go to uh, your extended family and they're like, you look really skinny, eat some more food. Maybe that's how you feel when you think of home. Or um, may, maybe you think of home as uh, where your heart is or where the people you love are or where your pets are. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you find it homey curling up on the couch by the fire as the fire crackles and you read a book and drink some hot chocolate. That sounds pretty homey to me. <laughs> Or maybe you're more at home in the great outdoors uh, and you like being out in God's creation, trekking through the bush, gazing up at the stars. Well, and so whatever or wherever we feel at home, there's one thing that underlies all of that, isn't there? And it's belonging. Uh, we tend to think of home as the place where we fit in, uh, the place where we're uh, most comfortable, where we're most accepted and loved where we can be ourselves and people see us in all of our weirdness and quirkiness and love us for it and, and, and we're cared for there. And we, we even have sayings like, I feel at home. Uh, for people listening to, on the podcast, I did inverted commas for at home. Uh, we also have welcome mats to, 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 to help people understand that they're welcome here. Um, and so we, we have this concept of home, don't we? And it's got this belonging underlying all of that. Well, in today's passage, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. But his experience there is the opposite of what we normally think of when we think of home. Instead of being welcomed and treated with care and loved, Jesus is rejected and shunned by those from his hometown. So Jesus goes home and his disciples follow. We've been following Jesus' journeys throughout the region of Galilee and its surrounding area, and along with his disciples as well, through the book of Mark. And in this passage today, Jesus goes home. He goes to his hometown, Nazareth, the place where he grew up, the place where people knew him, and people had watched him grow. 
Uh, they had a great amount of familiarity with Jesus. They knew who he is and they knew what he was like growing up. It's hard for us to comprehend that, but they did know that. They knew Jesus as one of the people in their town. They watched him grow. And you see who goes with him when he goes home. Following their master, the disciples follow him to Nazareth. Notice that. Jesus' disciples, they go where he goes. Disciples are students of the master, followers of the rabbi. Jesus shows the way and they follow him. Uh, In light of what comes later in this passage, it's wonderful to see this pattern of following Jesus, which comes from knowing Jesus. The disciples knew Jesus, and they knew that being his disciple meant going where he goes, following where he went, wherever he went. And while they didn't get it perfect every time, and, and neither will we, it's a great example for us of what following Jesus is. Knowing that he knows what's up, knowing that he knows where we're headed, and just following him and trusting in him. So that's what the disciples do. They follow him to his hometown. And you can imagine they're just thinking, we're going to Jesus' hometown. This should be fine. You know, we've been following him all over the place. Um, And now now we're going home. That sounds great. So Jesus, uh, what does he do when he gets home? Uh, Does he he kick back and take a break from his preaching and teaching ministry? Like maybe we might, if we we get home, we might want to take a break from work. No, Jesus continues to do what he's been doing. He continues to be teaching. And um, I don't know if you've picked up on this, uh, but there are tons of references in these chapters that we've been reading in Mark that call Jesus teacher or refer to him teaching. So uh, remember back in chapter four with the parables, he was teaching them, them, them in parables. And then he was explaining the content of those parables to his disciples. Uh, Jesus is called teacher in the midst of the storm. Also in chapter four, you might remember them saying, the disciples saying, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They call him teacher there. In chapter 5, Jairus' servants, you remember Jairus is the one whose daughter passed away. Um, and his servants came and called Jesus teacher when they, 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 well, they said to Jairus, why bother the teacher any longer? She's dead. So, And now again in chapter 6, Jesus is teaching. So we've had so many references to Jesus teaching. He's sharing the truths of God with these people. He's telling them the massive message of salvation in him. And where and when is he teaching? Well, his usual custom is teaching in the synagogue, uh, the Jewish gathering. um, And he's teaching there on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Now, Jesus didn't only teach in this place. We've seen him teach all over the place in all kinds of settings. Um, But in in this case, he's at home. uh, He's teaching where the Jews would meet and gather um, for worship in the synagogues. And they would do that, especially on the Sabbath, the day of rest that God gave to his people to be set apart. So Jesus is teaching. He's teaching as usual. uh, And he's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But the different thing this time is that he's teaching in his hometown. He's teaching in Nazareth. So as always, Jesus prioritizes preaching. Uh, We've seen that repeatedly since chapter one. Uh, He's uh, prioritized that over physical healings or over all of that other stuff. And when we think about all the people wanting to see Jesus elsewhere, we must be thinking along the lines, well, how good is the response going to be when he comes home? This is even better. The people know him. They're going to be like, yes, here he is, one of us. Well, let's have a look. (laughs) What's the response like to Jesus' teaching? Well, at first, in verse two, Mark tells us that many who heard Jesus were astonished. 
They were overwhelmed at his teaching and his depth of insight. Jesus' understanding and ability to communicate that were extraordinary. And they, they saw this. Uh, the amazing things that he says and that he does truly are astonishing. Have a look with me how the people responded there in verse 2. Where did the man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Where, what, how? These questions point to the evidence for Jesus. Where did this man get these things? Clearly not from man, but from God. What is the wisdom given to him? It's divine wisdom. It's not mere human understanding. And how are such mighty works done by his hands? The miraculous performed by the one who made and rules everything. And so there seems to be, at the beginning, some genuine amazement at Jesus and his ability to teach and do the miraculous. They see the evidence of Jesus' divinity, both in his teaching and his miracle working. Jesus doesn't teach as someone who just makes stuff up, but he teaches as the, the one who is God. He speaks the very words of God. And Jesus doesn't just do things that can be explained by everyday occurrences, but show that he works miracles as the one who created and rules over this creation. So the people of Nazareth, they see Jesus teaching, they see his miracles, and all of this that points to him being God, and in light of this, ought to bow down to him and praise him for who he is, recognize him and, and, and trust him. But notice how quickly any good kind of amazement turns bitterly sour. Instead of recognizing Jesus as God from the overwhelming evidence before them, uh, they despise him and reject him. The people reject Jesus in spite of the evidence. Jesus' wise teaching and his mighty works are evidence of his divine nature, the fact that he really is God come in the flesh. But the people don't believe. Instead, they harbor feelings of familiarity, superiority, and jealousy. Their familiarity, they know Jesus as one of the local children. They know his family. How can he be God? He's just one of the children. He played with our children. His family are known to us. He's just one of us, isn't he? Superiority. Uh, carpentry is a humble profession that was looked down upon some, not by Jesus. He was a carpenter. And they'd say things like, this is just a carpenter, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, he's the, he's the carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter. Um, are these just delusions of grandeur that he has, thinking he's something amazing? Jealousy. There's something about the idea of someone else being very highly regarded, especially when that person is close or familiar to us, that humans really don't like. The idea that someone close to us is really high up can really bother us. And it's what happened in Nazareth. It leads to a kind of jealousy. Uh, do you have siblings? Yeah, then you, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, maybe you were the sibling that other people were jealous of. <laughs> maybe you had a friend in your class with whom you were always neck and neck with and you wanted to best one another and uh, beat one another in whatever the test was, whether it was a demonstration of physical prowess like the uh, coming Maidavelle picnic <laughs> or, or maybe it was a maths test. <laughs> um, but someone else's success can be really irritating, can't it? Because we can be jealous and we want the acclaim for ourselves. And all of this kind of thinking that the people of Nazareth had, their familiarity with Jesus, 
their feelings of superiority and jealousy, all leads to thinking, who does he think he is? And we can see their responses to Jesus that we've been talking about in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So quickly, their astonishment turns to offense. Their feelings of, wow, Jesus, become, wow, Jesus. Who is he? Becomes, who is he? (laughs) What amazing works and teaching become what amazing works and teaching. So quickly, astonishment turns to offense. They despise Jesus. They don't like him one bit. They're thinking, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is to come in here and teach us? Don't you remember him doing his carpentry apprenticeship? Carpentry is a pretty humble career choice anyway. And wasn't he just one of the children running around with our kids? We even know their family, Mary, Joseph, and the kids. Just who does he think he is? And Jesus tells them this proverb in response. Have a look with me in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So while we tend to think of home as the place we're most welcome, the place where we belong, Jesus tells us that that's not what life is like for the prophets. And this is especially true of Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Instead of home being the place where prophets are most welcome and loved and cared for, it's the place where they are least welcome and loved and cared for. Uh, Jesus is looked down upon, uh, he's, he's rejected because people know who he is. And uh, there's a saying that we use for this, familiarity breeds contempt. When people are familiar with others, when we know one another really closely, there's a lot of uh, familiarity there, there can be tension. Maybe you've experienced such tension. Has anyone seen Everybody Loves Raymond? Uh, Raymond's parents move in across the road from them, and are at their house every single day. And there's a lot of tension um, because people do things to aggravate one another the whole time and it all escalates and you see people sorting out other people's houses, going through their drawers. It's, it's a bit nuts. <laughs> familiarity breeds contempt. But while there's still familiarity leading the people of Nazareth to scorn Jesus here, it's different from everybody loves Raymond. Jesus has lived his life perfectly. And he hasn't done anything worthy of their disdain. He's been doing good things. He's been teaching and he's been healing people. He's been doing the miraculous. And so it's more like tall poppy syndrome, where the people of Nazareth are jealous of Jesus and they despise him because they think of him as just one of the locals and they think he's getting too big for his boots. And they ask questions like, who is he to tell us about God? Who, who is he to do the miraculous? What gives him the right to teach us? Who does he think he is? So in light of their familiarity with him, they see his spiritual authority as offensive. They take offense at him. And do you remember what happened with Moses and Aaron in the wilderness in the Old Testament? God's Old Testament people grumbled and complained, and they cried and they sighed, and they moaned and they groaned, and they jeered, and they sneered. You get the idea. They said things like, hey, Moses, why'd you bring us out of Egypt? Was it to kill us and our little ones and our livestock? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness? 
Moses, the prophet, among his people was utterly rejected. He lived a life facing the scorn of the people. People rejected Moses, but ultimately in rejecting Moses, were rejecting God. And now we see Jesus, the fully God, fully man, king of the world, the ultimate prophet, face rejection. God in the flesh being rejected by his own people. The people of his hometown. The people who knew him. In John chapter 1 verse 11, uh, John says this of Jesus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The people of Nazareth, like many of the Jews, rejected Jesus. Uh, There was no place in their minds for one of their own like him to be the king of the whole world. And notice how personal it is. The people of his hometown, his relatives and his own household. The opposition stretches from the people who knew him as someone from their town, which is already pretty close, like uh, that's, you know, someone from their town, to the people he was related to. Now, that's really close, isn't it? You think your relatives, uh, right up to the people from his own house, the people who lived in the house with him, and you can't get closer than that. That's, that's, that's as close as you can get, physically, humanly speaking. And yet we see people in that situation with that kind of familiarity with him, reject him and take offense at him. They don't welcome him. It's an unwelcome home. He's not welcome there. He doesn't, they don't treat him as one of them, as though he belongs. They're jealous, they despise him, and they want nothing to do with him. And so what does Jesus do? Let's look at Jesus' response. Well, firstly, in his abundant grace and mercy, Jesus still compassionately heals a few sick people. And again, this points to his identity as the fully God, fully man king. But he doesn't do mighty works to the extent that he did elsewhere. Mark tells us that Jesus marvels, but he's marveling not at something good, but at their unbelief. Jesus was astonished at their faithlessness, at their lack of belief in him. They should recognize him but they refuse. They hear his teaching. They see his works. They've got the evidence right in front of him, right in front of them, but they refuse to believe in him. And so in spite of the evidence in front of them, their hard hearts prevent them from seeing Jesus as he is and responding rightly with trust in him. And naturally, we're no different to them. We're we're like the people of Nazareth who rejected Jesus. Our default setting is unbelief. But in the face of the evidence of Jesus' kindness, compassion, mercy, divine wisdom, divine actions, mighty works, this unbelief is completely illogical. And how does Jesus view this unbelief? He marvels at it. Jesus marvels at unbelief in him. In the face of the evidence, it's astonishing that anyone would choose not to believe in Jesus. And yet people do in the hardness of their heart. And this is not something we ever want to have, is it? Jesus marveling at our unbelief. Not at all. And what does Jesus do in light of their unbelief? He responds to their rejection with rejection. Jesus rejects them and moves on elsewhere. And and this judgment foreshadows the judgment to come. Jesus rejects those who reject him. 
and he will not have them in his presence and in his in, and this is true in the ultimate sense uh, those who reject jesus have no place in his kingdom now or in eternity and that's terrifying isn't it the result of the unbelieving rejection is to face his judgment where jesus rejects those who reject him and it's perfectly just and fair but that's not what we want to happen to us or to anyone else we desperately want people to come to jesus and know him so as this section uh, on fear and faith in this in the gospel of mark comes to a close the people of Jesus' hometown, with enough evidence to clearly see who Jesus is, refuse to believe in him. They reject Jesus, and so where does he go? Well, the last line stands out so prominently, um, and I don't think that's only because it's indented in my Bible. Uh, <laughs> see, see where Jesus went in the second half of verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus went about among the villages teaching. His teaching ministry continues, but not in Nazareth. Jesus' hometown rejected him, and so he went away. I remember all the way back towards the beginning of Mark, and throughout the rest of Mark, Jesus has consistently prioritized preaching, telling people the news of salvation in him. More important than the healing of the sick of their diseases is the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is continuing that mission of proclaiming his arrival as king and the salvation found only in him. Those who reject Jesus and don't want anything to do with him, he rejects from his kingdom. He moves on from Nazareth to go to the villages where there are others who need to hear this message, who need to hear this massive news, who will respond positively. And and Mark writes verse 6 in such a matter-of-fact way. And he went about among the villagers teaching. But when we reflect on it, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Jesus' own people rejecting him, responding with unbelief, and then facing his judgment by him going away. So how must we respond to Jesus? Well, there are only two options, rejecting Jesus or receiving him as Lord and Saviour. We naturally take option one of rejecting him. And we mustn't trust in mere familiarity with Jesus. Uh, Like like the people of Nazareth who had a great familiarity with Jesus, but no faith. Jesus marveled at their unbelief, remember. And we as people in the church need to be aware of of the the possibility of, of, of trusting in mere familiarity with Jesus. That we come to church, that we know stuff about him without actually believing in him for ourselves. We need to know Jesus for ourselves. And we need to follow Jesus for ourselves, like the disciples. In contrast to the people of Nazareth, who stayed behind when Jesus went on to the other villages. John 1, which we mentioned earlier in verses 11 to 13, says this. He, that's Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what hope is there? Well, there's no hope found in rejecting Jesus, but there is secure hope found in receiving him and trusting in him. Receiving Jesus, as John tells us, 
calling upon God as Father and being born again by the Holy Spirit. And how we respond to Jesus is of the utmost importance. There's nothing more significant in the entire world. You'll never make a more important decision. And Mark's shown us ample evidence that Jesus is indeed the king of the whole world. The king who saves, the king who cares, the king who can do something about our situation. And so we must ask ourselves, how do I respond to Jesus? Rejecting him or receiving him? Unbelief or belief in his name? Because by nature, all of us tend to the rejecting Jesus side. It's only through God's work by his spirit of causing us to be born again that we can come to spiritual life in Jesus. We need to be born again. We need to ask ourselves, have I been born again? Have I been taken from my natural state of rejecting Jesus to be my spiritual death, to spiritual life in Jesus, to, to receiving him? It's possible to have been in church for a very long time and to not know Jesus, to not be born again, to be like the people of Nazareth, where familiarity with Jesus is not accompanied with faith. We must never do that. And all of this hinges upon whether we reject Jesus, like the people of Nazareth did, or if we receive Jesus and believe in his name, believing that we're sinners who need saving, and that Jesus is the saviour who took our place on the cross. He bore the debt that we owed to God, and he rose again, defeating sin, death, and the devil. Do we believe that in our heart? In the face of the evidence, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' miracles, the only right conclusion is that he is indeed who he said he is. That's why he marvels at the people's unbelief before him. And do you remember that the people of Nazareth were initially amazed at Jesus? Where did he get this teaching from? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works performed by his hands? They don't reject him because of the evidence. They reject him because their hard hearts got in the way. We mustn't do what they did, have a familiarity that's not accompanied with faith. Jesus is offering us the greatest gift of all, salvation and eternal life in him. And what does it cost us? It's a free gift to us. What did it cost him? Everything. He gave his life on a cross to save people like us so that we can be right with God, restored to perfect relationship with God, which we so desperately need. Salvation in Jesus is a gift. Knowing Jesus is a gift. We can either reject Jesus or receive him. So I implore you today, don't reject the greatest gift you'll ever be offered. Gratefully receive Jesus, believe in his name, and call upon God the Father, having been born again by the Holy Spirit. And you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can put your trust in Jesus. You can, you can say, instead of rejecting Jesus, like that's our, all of our default position, I'm going to receive Jesus. I'm going to receive him as Lord. And, and Jesus, by his spirit, will come to live in you. And he makes his home then in us, which is just awesome when you think about his love for us in doing that. 
and we, we, we must come to terms with Jesus before it's too late. And we, none of us know when we're going to die. We don't know when we're, when we're going to stand before God, but we know that we will. Uh, so I urge you to come to terms with Jesus today. Receive him today while there's still time. And if, if you want to do that, I'll ask you to pray with me in a moment. And then please come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to get to chat to you more about Jesus and what it means to receive him and be one of his people. So we're going to pray in a moment. But before, before we do that, I do need to warn you that if you are, if you are going, yep, I'm going to receive Jesus today, then Jesus does tell us to count the cost of doing that. He says that it doesn't make life easy here and now. Um, it, there's going to be challenges. The, the world doesn't like Jesus because uh, Jesus calls things the way they are. He calls us um, out for our sin and he calls us to repent and believe in him. And the world's response to Jesus was to crucify him. And if we follow the crucified Savior, we should expect the same uh, fate for ourselves. But while the kinds of suffering that people go through for following Jesus can be extreme, the Bible tells us that the glory to come so far outweighs any possible suffering we could endure now that it's entirely worth it. So if you are thinking, should I reject Jesus or should I receive Jesus? I urge you today to receive him while there's still time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the great and loving God who sent your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to save, to rescue people like us from our sin. Lord, we confess that we are rebels against you deserving of your judgment. Naturally, Lord, we all reject you. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness, for your mercy. Wash us clean, Lord. We trust wholly in the Lord Jesus, whose blood was shed in our place, whose body was broken in our place, uh, that we might be restored to right relationship with you. Lord, grant that we would never have a familiarity with you that is not accompanied with faith. Grant that we would always be believing in you, and living in light of who you are, and trusting you, the almighty Savior and King. And it's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.